Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today is a Throwback Thursday episode. We are talking to Davey Duplessis. This episode is originally from 2015, episode 121, and we're talking, uh, Travis was hosting this episode, and we're talking about an adventure going dark or going bad. And what I mean by that is, you know, we... One of the themes of this show is that the world is in a better place than a lot of us think it is. I know on the news, especially right now, there's a lot of conflict. It feels like the world's, you know, at war. Uh, But remember, the news is the exception to the rule. That's why it's news. 99% of the world, I don't know the exact, you know, percentage, but it's at peace. People are trying to get along. People are trying to just get on with their day, make some money, feed their families, have fun, enjoy their lives. The vast majority of people doing that, and adventure teaches you that better than anything, anything I've ever done. But sometimes things do happen. Uh, we've definitely had a lot of stories on the show of when things go awry, things don't go to plan, or, or when we see the darker side of humanity. This is one of those stories. It's not meant to scare you or dissuade you. Uh, but to show you, you know, some of the reality that can happen. It's not always rainbows and sunshine. Uh, and those stories are really fascinating. There's a lot of lessons we can learn in them. And also, uh, you know, it, it helps being prepared. It helps to know what you're getting into. It helps to to be ready for certain circumstances. Uh, but to not, not walk around with a sense of fear, but a sense of, uh, you know, just knowing, being aware of your surroundings. And sometimes things happen. Uh, and this is Davy's story. It's a powerful story. And we haven't shared it in a long time, so I'm looking forward to to sharing it. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Davy Duplessis, an avid cyclist and paddler, wanted to solo navigate the full length of the Amazon River by kayak from its source in the Andes of Peru to the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil. After about two months and 2,000 kilometers, his amazing adventure took a dark turn. Davey is here with me today to describe the events that changed his life. Davey, welcome to the show. Hi, Travis. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. I appreciate you setting, setting aside the time to tell us about this amazing story. Um, yeah. I want to start with who Davey uh, was when he was a kid. Uh, were you an adventurous kid? How did you come up and, and end up being such an adventurous person? To be honest, I, I was never adventurous. I still really don't consider myself too adventurous either. Um, I mean, I grew up surfing. I mean, uh, surfing has probably been uh, the most dedicated I've been to anything in my whole life. But adventure kind of, I would say, I, f- I fell into it purely by accident because the first adventure I did was um, I cycled from Egypt to South Africa and that came about when I was at breakfast with this uh, with some friends, and I heard this one girl talking to another girl saying her brother is planning to cycle from Egypt to South Africa. And I was like, wow, that sounds awesome. Again, I was eavesdropping on their conversation. And then I said to her, I said, do you think your brother would mind if I joined him? Uh, just because I thought it would be so cool. I mean, I, even though I come from South Africa, I hadn't seen much of Africa, and generally that's the case with most South Africans. If we go on a holiday or we go and explore, we go explore other countries and we neglect our own continent. And when I heard this, I was like, well, this sounds awesome. And I got the guy's number, I SMSed him or sent him a text, and then 
fortunately, he said, yeah, you can join. And then when I did that first trip through Africa, that kind of just uh, provided this awesome experience, but also it provided a platform for me to do, feel like I was actually contributing some positive some positive things to humanity and uh, adventure really not not so much the activity itself but it became this inspiring platform for me to uh, kind of be a form of activism and that's what got me hooked with adventure so were you a a cyclist going into that or was that something completely new to you Oh, no, not at all. I mean, with all these adventures, I've had absolutely no experience. I mean, before I did this cycle through Africa, literally the week before, I got my bike, and then I cycled from my home to my dad's my dad's house, and that was like, I think it was about 10 kilometers, and that was the most I'd ever cycled. And then the next week, we flew into Egypt, and we did like 120 kilometers a day, and then we just carried on. And we averaged 100 Ks for four months. But I had absolutely no experience. I kind of do think experience is a bit overrated with these things also. That's great. So this guy just let you sign on to his trip. And I assume he was a bit of a, an avid cyclist when he planned to do this. So how does he just agree to, to let some guy tag along that really isn't a rider? Well, yeah, he was. He um he had cycled a bit of Southeast Asia before, you know, he had done some cycle touring. Um, I think he joined or he allowed me to join because he had other friends that were going to join, but one of them got engaged and pulled out. So I think he was still committed to the project. And yeah, I, I think maybe he wanted the company or, um, he didn't want to do it alone. I don't know, but he just allowed me to join. I didn't tell him that I wasn't a cyclist. I said, no, no, I'll keep up. Don't worry. And uh, fortunately, I did. <laughs> I mean, that was mainly because Egypt is flat. You know, we started in Egypt and we went through Sudan and it's just flat. There's no hills. There's not even like a, a slight incline. So I was lucky that we started there because then I could kind of acclimatize and accommodate uh, long days of cycling. So how did you prepare for that? I mean, if you weren't an avid cyclist to begin with, you, you weren't set up with the equipment. Did you just simply run out and get a, a decent bike and, and get going? Or, I mean, how much well, time did you have to, pr to plan for this? I actually, I actually got the same bike as him because I thought, well, if he uses it, maybe I should get it. And it was a bike that he got from the States. Uh, I think it was, it was by a company called Surly. And, uh, I didn't have money at the time, but my car had been stolen, and I got a, a, a small amount of insurance payouts, and I used that to buy the bike, and then I had the bike sent in, but I just copied what Ricky did because I was completely uh, oblivious to what bike I need, what equipment. I mean, I, he even had spare pannier bags that he, he loaned to me, so essentially, I just I got in there very green. <laughs> I, I, I was so captivated by the idea that that's what kept me going. That's great. Well, that says something about you that you can just kind of dive into something like that and, and pull it off. I mean, so tell me about that, that journey. How long was it? And, uh, you know, how did it all go with you guys not having known each other? Well, so that was four months. We went through, I think it was nine African countries. We did the East coast of Africa and then eventually finished 
at Ricky's home in South Africa. Um, we dedicated the whole project to Habitat for Humanity. Um, and we were, in every uh, country we went through, we were, we were fortunate to go and see the work that Habitat for Humanity was doing, you know, seeing the housing issues within Africa. So that was essentially why we did the whole thing. But then I think, uh, we, I mean, I remember this was a long time ago, but uh, it was just under 10,000 kilometers. We did it in uh, four months. Um, our relationship, you know, we never really had a relationship uh, before and we never really maintained it one after. But whilst we were cycling, um, yeah, we were good, you know, we were good to each other. I think there was a pro and a con to not knowing each other going into it is that we had time for our relationship to develop. You know, I think we only argued once the whole time and it wasn't even a serious argument. It was about whether we stay at Kilimanjaro or we go and watch South Africa play a football game against Tanzania. Um, but other than that, you know, we, I think we were both committed to, uh, getting back home to South Africa and we, and we worked while we were together. But then after we, our relationship just kind of faded. Um, but uh, while we were there, yeah, I think we we worked good together, and um, yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So normally, I would ask our guests why they would encourage people to do their particular sport, but in your case, I want to ask why might you encourage somebody to just kind of jump into to something so amazing like this uh, without the planning. Well, the, a lot the planning had been done by by Ricky, whereas the physical activity not at all. You know, even the plan, the the route that we chose changed lots of times. But uh, you know, maybe it's because I'm young and I've heard that experience is so crucial so many times. I just got sick and tired of hearing that, and I said, "Well, I can't encourage anyone to do something." if I'm always harping on about experience and even when I spoke to other guys, you know, also because I'm a vegan, they were like, no, no, you won't be able to, uh, achieve the daily endurance because you need, you know, you need to be eating animals. And there was just so much junk that I was hearing from people. And I said, no wonder why no one does these things because you get put off before you even start. And I, yeah. I never wanted to be like that. I yeah, wanted to encourage people from the beginning and, the reality is if you've got legs and you've got a bicycle, even if you don't have a bicycle, you can walk. You know, it's not a, it's not a race. You know, we took four months. You can take 10 months. You can take 10 years if you want. I think as long, I always say that as long as you have a, a, just enough motivation to do it, that's all you really need. You can learn how to get fit. You can learn how to cycle. You can trust that you have the capability to deal with whatever challenges you face. But you're never going to do it if you are beaten before you even reach the start line. Um, and that's why I just said, I don't want to go into this being a, a professional cyclist and, um, you know, spend these training days. And I just said, let me just go into this as green as possible. And if I can adjust, uh, anyone can. Um, and my whole thing is, you know, the unfortunate thing is that if you're going to do something that's different, um, expect a lot of negative perceptions and all you've got to really learn is just to be a good filter you know filter out all the junk that people say and just do it 
I don't think there's anything else that I could say. You know, I wouldn't. Even when I went to the Amazon, never prepared. I've got another adventure now. Never prepared. Um, I think the biggest thing is it's a mental challenge. But the reality is, you can only deal with these mental challenges when you're actually physically on the adventure. So you can't even prepare for that. So just do it. I would say. Oh, very well said. Well, before we we get off of the uh, the cycling uh, trip in Egypt, I want to ask: Is there a decent or is there an amazing uh, experience that you had on that trip that you'd like to share? You know, the 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 most amazing experience and the highlight for me was also one of the most saddening things. Um, before I left for this this trip. I thought I would be cycling through Africa and I would be experiencing this raw, intact nature. You know, I, I, I love nature. And that's essentially what was one of the biggest draw cards to the cycle through Africa is because I thought every day I'd be seeing wild animals and I'd be in the, the thick African bush. And, you know, when the cycle commenced, it was it didn't happen like that. You know, Africa whilst maybe the perception from your side of the world is that Africa is this uh, you know, this place full of nat- natural wonders, the reality is it's been just as developed and commercialized as every other country. And now, only time you ever see wild animals and you see like what wild Africa would have been like is in the tiny game reserves. Otherwise, the rest has been converted into agriculture and you know, sit- urban sprawl. But I didn't know that. So when I got to Africa, I was just depressed because all I was doing was either going, cycling through areas of poverty, areas of uh, monoculture, agriculture. The only animals I was seeing were either stray dogs or people's livestock that they didn't look after. And then about halfway through, when we were in Tanzania, we cycled through a small portion of a game reserve that actually had a main road going through it. So it wasn't private. It was just it was actually a natural heritage, uh, natural heritage site. And when we cycled through that, um, it was a full day of cycling, but we, I saw elephants for the first time and we saw like a huge herd of elephants literally 10 meters on the side of the road. It was just us on our bikes. And it was such an amazing experience to be seeing elephants from a bicycle seat. And I felt so vulnerable, but I was like, you know, this is what I expected. This is what I thought Africa was like. And it remained a highlight because it was the only time I ever saw wild animals. Uh, but obviously it was saddening because that's the state of Africa. You know, we, we aspire to develop like you guys have in America but when you develop for humans, you destroy everything else. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there's two sides of the coin to that. But that was by far experience that I sit with, and I always reflect on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually saw, you know, some video footage of you um, filming yourself with the elephants behind you. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's as you spoke about that and that being surprising to you, I it really hit me, you know, because when I was watching the video, you looked like you were kind of beside yourself that you were seeing these elephants. And I think in my mind, I'm thinking, well, why he, why is he so surprised? Like, mm-hmm. of course, Africa's full of elephants, just, <laughs> just yeah. roaming around. You know, I've never been there and you're right. And the, the image that we see is, is that, yeah, the wild game is all around you. Of course it must be, right? 
Yeah, not like that. Well, I mean, it's like me thinking, you know, if you live in, where, where, well, you're in, in California. Colorado. Colorado. That, well, that's like me saying, well, maybe it is, but that you guys just walk out of your home and there's bears roaming the streets. <laughs> it's not like that. You know, right. this, is what, this is what happens when people adopt what you guys do. You know, we adopt the Western mentality and we strive to develop big cities, but you can't develop a city and uh, uh, hope that you're going to keep nature intact. You know, the, right. the city is based on exploiting nature. Um, and the reality, that's what Africa is like. Huge parts of it. You know, even the parts where there is still untouched, well, I say untouched, not untouched, but parts of Africa where it is not developed yet, all the animals have been hunted or killed. So, you know, we would even be, I'd be cycling through big tracts of, you know, what I thought was dense bush, but you see absolutely nothing. You know, you're lucky if you see a few birds. Um, that's, I mean, that's the sad state of of Africa. Is it's not what National Geographic shows you. What National Geographic and the Discovery show you are these small private game reserves where animals are fenced in and protected from us humans. Right, right. No, that's a good point. It's uh it's one fun thing about doing this uh, this podcast is we can have people on that have been down to experience the world yeah. as it really is and, and relate yeah. that to the rest of us, you know? That's good. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well... Often in our shows, we ask our guests uh, about a time that didn't uh, that things didn't go right. Um, but this question is really why I have you on the podcast because you have an absolutely amazing story about a trek down the Amazon. Um, Mark Kolch introduced me to you and your story, and I had him back on a while back, a few episodes episodes ago, and he talked about paddling the Amazon and and introduce me to you. So can you start from the beginning and, and take plenty of time to tell this story, go into the detail. I really want to paint the picture um, it, for myself as much as the, the listener as well, because I want to, I want to hear your whole story about how this all happened. Okay. Well, I, I mean, one thing I will mention when you talk about Mark Couch, when I, when I was planning to do this Amazon, I actually decided to do it whilst I was cycling through Africa. And I found about, well, I heard about Mark Couch and I emailed him. And, you know, he was the only guy I emailed that had actually done it. And he was the only guy who was encouraging. He sent me an email. He said, you're going to hear a lot of people giving you these negative uh, perceptions. He said, at the end of the day, you can do it. If you want to do it, just do it. And I, I think a lot of my attitude was inspired by the way he just, you know, he was the only guy that actually did it. But he was the only person encouraging other people to uh paddle or to go navigate the Amazon River. And I, that's where I kind of draw a lot of my inspiration from, is from Mark Kulch, uh, just because he has a great attitude. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, a very inspiring guy. Um, so, so I plan to do navigate the Amazon River after this Africa cycle, and I plan to do it within a year after arriving back from Africa. And the whole reason I was drawn to the Amazon was because I realized how nature had been destroyed in Africa. And I thought, you know, where else on the planet can I go and expect to actually experience some raw, intact nature? 
And I thought, well, Amazon Jungle. It has to be. I thought, you know, Amazon Jungle is always highlighted as this, pl- this wondrous place full of different species and still has these big, vast tracts of undiscovered jungle. And I thought, okay, I want to go to that jungle. I want to see it. And I, I also was telling myself that at the time that if Africa has been destroyed in such a short time, this is only, it's only a matter of time before the Amazon starts to be exploited for its you know, its species and its resources and its perceived wealth. So I said, okay, I'm going to go into the Amazon. But then I thought, you can't just go into the Amazon. You know, I was also inspired to go into the Amazon because I wanted to encourage people to care more about animals and to care more about the environment and to care more about nature. But I know I couldn't just go on this casual holiday into the jungle, first of all, because it would, it would be a manufactured experience if I went to the tour guide. And secondly, if I had a message, I couldn't really promote it if I was just you know, being carted around as a tourist in a country. So I thought, okay, go to the Amazon jungle, attach this message of empowering people to care more about our environment and encouraging people to take responsibility because we're all part of it. And third, you're going to have to do something that's significant. And I thought, okay, obviously the best way to experience the jungle is to follow the river. And that's when I then decided to navigate the, the entire Amazon River from its source to the sea. And bear in mind, again, this was with no experience. I mean, I'd never paddled a river before in my life. Well, I lie. Actually, when I was at school, we did like these uh, these spirit building, you know, these, uh, I, don't, I think you guys call them camps, adventure camps. Right. And I, I, I did it with, with a, a few of our uh, the guys in my class, they just put you in like a big white water raft and they push you slowly down a river. You know, it's it's, it's a very harmless uh, introduction into paddling. But, I mean, that's all I'd really done. And besides surfing, uh, that's the only experience I had with any turbulent water. So I, I went to the Amazon. Um, I started, I, because of the source of the Amazon, it, it's, it, at that point it was documented to start at uh, this mountain called Mount Mizmi, and essentially where the first meltwater off this mountain eventually forms the tiny trickle which forms the biggest stream and then eventually it forms the Amazon River. So I started from the top of that mountain, I had to hike up there, and uh, that was, I mean that was about, I think it's about 5,600 meters above sea level, which is almost the same size as Kilimanjaro, and again... Right. I had no hiking experience. I mean, I just thought, okay, well, let me just go find this thing. And uh, I found it. I got to the top there. I summited that. And then that's when the journey officially started. And from there, I then cycled for about um, just under a 1,000 kilometers because a lot of the river was either non-existent, it was too small, or it was too turbulent for me to paddle. And because I had no experience, I thought if I paddle this, I probably won't even be able to make the end of the river. So I thought, well, let me cycle along the river because I can do that. And I cycled for um, yeah, just under a 1,000 kilometers. And then eventually I hit the jungle and I started paddling. Um, you know, the, there's a funny story that I, I never really tell because of what happened in the jungle. always just trumps everything else that I experienced in the jungle. But when I started paddling, the first day I put the – I had a, one of these uh, foldable kayaks that I'd never used. I put it in the water and I realized how, 
completely unprepared I was because I set off on that first day and I, uh, uh, I went through some rapids and I almost broke the whole kayak and I thought, well, now what? You know, if I break this kayak, I will never make the rest of this four or 5,000 kilometers of the river. And I only <laughs> really had daunting. like, yeah, it was very daunting. And I only really had, I remember after that first day, uh, uh, I uh, realized I only had about maybe 60 or 70 kilometers of white water to go through before the river eventually opened out and then it would be easy to paddle. But I thought if those 60, 70 kilometers, I can essentially end the whole expedition just by destroying the kayak or, or drowning. So what I decided to do then was to pack up my kayak and I left it at a small town and I went and bought a, a truck tire tube and I inflated that, you know, like a big floating ring. Right. And I tied myself to that and I floated <laughs> down the river for 70 kilometers. So I got through all I the rapids. no idea. Uh, you know, but I mean, that, you know, that's just, uh, I just had to adapt. And uh, again, it comes at that point, I had absolutely no experience. Um, awesome. But you just, you just find a way. But then eventually after that, uh, after that, I got to paddling. And I paddled for about uh, three weeks. And eventually I'd done uh, just over 2,000 kilometers of the river. So I was, you know, I was roughly uh, a quarter, maybe just over a quarter of the way of navigating the Amazon. And by this time I'd adjusted to living in the jungle. I knew that I would eventually, well, at least I thought I would eventually make the the source, I mean, the, the, the end of it where it meets the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil. And it was, it was on a day, it was on day 56. It was two months into the adventure and I was paddling, you know, just innocently thinking, uh, you know, a couple more months and I eventually reach my goal. And I saw these two guys come past me and what they call a peke peke. It's like one of their motorized boats. And I thought it was fishermen in the beginning because I'd seen fishermen throughout the journey. And I saw them, they came past me and then they disappeared behind a big bend of the river. And I just, you know, I didn't expect anything. I was never suspicious because I had seen guys like this throughout the, the adventure. And about 10 minutes after seeing these guys, I just, Eventually, I just carried paddling, and I just felt something slam into my back, and I thought it was a bird or something, but something hit my back, and it knocked me off my kayak, and because the the, the force against my spine was so severe, it put me into a paralysis, and I, before I could realize what was going on, I just sank deeper into the Amazon River, and I was, unca- I, I was incapable of swimming, and I thought I was going to drown because... I couldn't move my body and you know, while I was sinking underwater and because it happened so quickly, I was like, what the hell is going on here? You know, I was up paddling one second and then the next second now I'm sinking in the river and I can't even swim. And I sank deeper and deeper and then eventually I got to like the depths of the river and I managed to get a bit of movement from my waist down and I kicked water to the surface. And when I got to the surface, I thought, what the hell is going on here? I thought, like, did a bird fly into my back? You know, it just was crazy. It was such a foreign feeling just from out of nowhere. I just felt this thing hit my back and knocked me off my kayak. And I remember looking around to see if it was a bird. Maybe this bird has probably broken its neck and is lying in the water. And I saw nothing. It was just me and my capsized kayak in the jungle. And I thought, 
I just couldn't piece together what was going on. And I thought, okay, well, keep yourself afloat, swim to your kayak. And I started swimming to the kayak, which was capsized. And just before I got to the kayak, a second impact hit me in the head. And it was like someone had taken a cricket bat or a baseball bat. And that hit me in the head. But I didn't hear anything. I didn't feel any pain. You just feel this massive sensation, this force. And then I was just left bewildered. Like, what is going on? I thought, okay, maybe there is some animal that's attacking me in the Amazon in the Amazon River, and I, it's just coming up and striking at me, then going underwater again. And I thought, okay, get out the river, get out the river. Um, I, w- I wasn't too far away from the riverbank, and I kicked water to the riverbank, and then eventually I got to, like, knee-deep water, and I just collapsed, and I sat down, you know, hunking over my, my knees with my shoulders. I was just like, what is going on here? And when I sat there, a third impacted me on the right side of the head, and... When it hit my head, my head just went limp, and I just kind of remember my head just dropping into the water, and I remember I was just drooling because I, I, was, I was pretty much numb all over my body, and I felt like I was losing control of what was going on. But on that third impact, I then pieced together, okay, you know, you've been shot. Someone at this, in the jungle is shooting at you, and... When my head dropped into the water, uh, because one of the shots had punctured my carotid artery, I remember just looking in the, this, the, the river that I was sitting in, and I just saw this big patch of red, and it was slowly expanding, and it was due to that punctured carotid artery, and I realized I must be bleeding out from somewhere in my body. And when I pieced this all together, I'm like, okay, you're bleeding out. In the middle of the Amazon River, you've been shot but you don't know who's shooting at you. Someone is shooting at you from somewhere. I just said, there is no way you get out of this. It just didn't make sense. And when I pieced together what was happening, I just said, this, you know, I convinced myself that this is where you die. You know, this is the end of your life. And when I told myself that, I, I closed my eyes and I lay into the river and I just, I just waited, you know, the, the, one of the strange things I remember going through when I, when I thought that this was the end is that when I lay into the river and I closed my eyes, I'm not religious and I, you know, I don't believe in a God, but I, I lay back into the river and I thought, okay, well, if you're going to die, now is the perfect time to test whether a God exists or not. And I lay back and I actually told myself, I said, okay, if Jesus is out there, now would be the perfect time for him to show himself. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. There. And I didn't see Jesus. Okay, okay. I said, maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe it's Allah. And I was like, maybe if Allah is out there, please show yourself because, uh, you know, I will believe if you want me to believe. And I, I think I was, uh, I was so scared that I was trying to find out that, you know, I just wanted some comfort. And I thought that if, if, any, if there was ever a good time to believe in a God, now is it. And I just ran over these situations and said, okay, well, okay what, if God's going to come, What's he going to look like? You know, and, and it distracted me from the actual situation, which was actually quite pleasant. Wow. But as I lay there going over thinking, okay, um, you know, is Jesus going to look like a man or will he look like a ghost or uh, is it a woman? You know, is he white? And I just ran over and over. And whilst I was going through this, I um, heard this boat coming up river and it kind of distracted me from, uh, you know, that, 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 mindset I was in and I kind of woke up from this funk and I was like okay okay 
what's going on? You're back in real life now. You can hear something. And I sat up and I looked at the boat and I saw it was one of those two guys who had passed me not even 10 minutes ago. And when I saw him, I realized that his friend who was dressed in a yellow t-shirt must be the guy hiding in the jungle behind me. He's the guy shooting at me. Now, this guy who's coming up on the boat is obviously checking if the job has been done, you know, to see if I'm dead or not. And when I saw him, I then staggered up to my feet and I started to plead to beg for my life. And I begged and I begged because I couldn't understand what I'd done wrong to deserve this. And I said, you know, you can take my things. Just please leave me alone. I didn't do anything. And the more I begged, the guy just didn't care. You know, he just had no expression. Uh, and I realized, you know, if you're still here begging and this guy reaches you, he's probably got a machete in his boat and he will make sure he kills you. And when I realized that, I said, okay, you can't, you can't wait to hang around here to see if this guy is going to be forgiving to you or not. And I just said, get out of the situation, run. And I took off into the jungle. And as I ran into the jungle, again, I left all my kayak, I left all my equipment, I just ran into the jungle. Uh, the guy fired a fourth shot that hit me in my leg. I ran through the jungle for a couple kilometers, and then eventually, out of nowhere, I found these two, these two other guys from another community. And I mean, they literally just appeared from nowhere. Well, they actually appeared on the opposite side of the riverbank. And I managed to get their attention, but I struggled for a while because I had also, from the shots, I had a punctured lung. So I couldn't make a, a loud enough sound. You know, I couldn't get enough pressure in my lungs to actually shout to these guys. So I saw them across the river, and I was trying to shout, but all I could do was just like wheeze. And then eventually one of them saw me. They physically saw me, and I think it was because I had a blue shirt against a, a, a green background. And they saw me, they came and picked me up, and then they took me into their community. And when I got into their community, again, I'm piecing this story after it happened, but when I got in that community, I don't speak Spanish, and I had no idea what these guys were saying. But eventually what I pieced together was that there's a hospital, but it's still 24 hours away in a city called Pucallpa. And they can't help me because they don't have enough petrol to get a boat all the way there. And what they then decided to do was to take me to another community downriver, which was slightly bigger. Again, but these are very indigenous, primitive communities. They live solely in the jungle. They have no connection with the outside world. And they said, okay, we'll take you to the bigger community downriver, down and maybe they may be able to help you. They then put me in one of their boats. We went down to this river. About, this was about six hours after I'd been shot. We get to the second community, which is now going into Saturday evening. And the, this community doesn't want to help me because they want money. And I obviously had no money because I left everything when I ran away from the guys who were shooting at me. For must have been about two or three hours, we just, you know, we kind of stagnated on the riverbank because they would come up to me the new community guys, and they would say, we want to help you, but we need money. And then I would say to them, I have no money because I left everything in the kayak when those guys were shooting at me. And they'd say, okay, okay, we understand. And they would go and they would discuss with each other on the riverbank. And they'd come to me and they'd say, we still need money. And I'd be <laughs> like, well, I, I still don't have any money. Nothing's changed in this situation. I've been here on the riverbank the whole time waiting for you guys. But eventually what happened is I, 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 could, I, I knew I had internal bleeding and my initial concern was that I was filling my lungs.
because my breathing was getting very restricted. But I didn't realize my breathing was restricted because my lung was punctured. But I kept on thinking, you know what, you're going to drown in your own blood. This is taking too long. And whilst I was there and these guys were having the discussion about money and whether I had money or not, I started to throw up a lot of blood. Um, I mean, I know it was a lot because there was a guy scooping out all the blood out of the boat. And to make matters worse, some of the blood had been in my stomach for so long that it had coagulated. So when it was coming through my, my esophagus, my throat, it was choking me. So I had to put my fingers down my throat and crush up the blood just so I could, I could breathe and that it didn't get stuck. It was a very gory experience, but it kind of interrupted the pattern that these guys were going through where they then stopped the discussion and they all stood around me while I was vomiting. And I think they, that vomiting eventually kind of painted the picture that, okay, well, maybe this is a serious situation. We have to help this guy because I don't think he's going to live much longer. And then they didn't, after I threw up, there was no more concern about money or anything. They then just put me in a new boat and we head down river. And I thought, okay, great. They've obviously seen enough. They know this is a serious situation. They know I don't have money and they're now going to help me. And we took off down river, now going into uh, uh, Saturday night. And about four hours after the second community, they arrive at this spot on the riverbank. And again, it's pitch black. There's no infrastructure in the middle of the jungle. You know, it's just dense jungle. There's no lights. There's nothing to indicate where these communities actually live. So they pulled up to this dark spot of the riverbank. They picked me up out of the kayak. They walked me into the jungle. And they all just left me. They just disappeared. And I thought, okay. I, I, I remember there were, there's a scene. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one guy gets sick. And because he kind of he dampens the mood of all the party goers. They take him and they hide him in the jungle and they let him die there because they don't want to remind anyone of uh, uh, his death and his sickness because it's just too depressing. Right. And I thought I was reliving that similar scene where these guys have taken me out of their jungle or out of their community. I was a burden to them because for them it was a Saturday evening. They probably just wanted to have a good time and just chill and talk around the fire. But now they're to worry about me. And I thought, this is them getting rid of me. Uh, but eventually after I was left in the jungle alone for about it must have been half an hour maybe a bit longer I heard voices coming through the jungle and it was those original guys with other guys and then without saying anything and again they never explained anything or, or maybe they did but I couldn't understand Spanish so I had no idea what was going on and eventually they just stopped speaking to me because they realized I had no idea what was going on so I was always oblivious as to what was going on but eventually these guys came through, came through the jungle. They picked me up, walked me through, put me in another boat, and we just took off down the river. Didn't tell me anything. And about four hours later, they did the exact same thing. They pulled up to the side of the riverbank, walked me into the jungle, and then all left me. And then 30 minutes later, they came back, picked me up, put me in another boat. And we did, we did that through, uh, eventually, was we passed through five different communities. And I only realized that they had you know, what, what I perceived as abandoning me in the jungle was actually protecting me because they were essentially trespassing over another community's territory. And if you imagine from their perspective, you know, or, or maybe I could relate it to you, but imagine your neighbor from a couple blocks down arrives on your doorstep in the middle of the night with a, a semi-conscious dead body and says, you know what, 
can you take this guy to a hospital? You're going to be like, are you kidding me? I, uh, don't burden me with this now. I, I don't want to deal with this dead body. And uh, I think they were hiding me in case there was some flare-up between the communities that would then be pinned on me. So they were essentially protecting me and uh, instead of neglecting me. And it, it took just over 24, no, just under 24 hours. We passed through five different communities and then we eventually got to the sixth stop, which was this hospital in Pukalpa. When we got to the hospital in Pukalpa, they didn't want to help because they wanted money and they wanted me to provide some identity. And again, I had absolutely nothing. And when I, I lay in that hospital for about three or four hours and the doctors did nothing, and eventually I got a phone from one of the doctors and I called my mom and I said, Mom, I've been shot. She then went on this like Facebook networking spree. And about an hour after I spoke to her mom, two people walked in into the hospital and they said, we've heard what's happened. Uh, we, we had to help you. They went to the doctors. They said, here we go. Here's money. You can start operating on this guy. Now, bear in mind, I'd been in this hospital for about three or four hours. The doctors had not, done absolutely nothing you know, wow. besides clean up a bit of the vomit that I threw up on the floor. The doctors then took me in for one x-ray. They took me out and they said, we've picked up shots lying close to his vital organs. We cannot help him because we don't have the facilities. We need to now get him to another hospital in Lima, Peru, which is on the capital or on the coastline. And this was now going into Sunday evening. And the problem was that no medical evacuation was prepared to do this flight because you have to fly over the Peruvian Andes. And at night time, it was just too dangerous. So what happened then was the guys who had stepped in to provide a surety, they then booked me on a commercial airliner. So like uh, like a domestic airline for you guys would be like if you're going to fly Colorado or to New York. You know, just a domestic, casual um, passenger airliner. They booked right. me on one of those. But they, the doctors didn't clean me up. All they did was they put me in a stretcher. And remember, I had puncture holes in my head. I was still full of blood. And they booked out four horizontal seats. They then put me on top of the seats in the stretcher. And they tied me into the plane with rope and seat and the seat belts. And we took off. But, I mean, imagine flying for you guys. If you're just flying from you know, Colorado to Arizona. You know, just like an hour domestic flight, you got your family on board, and then you look across, and there is this, essentially a dead body that's full of blood and puncture holes, and he's strapped and tied down to the seats. You'd think this is crazy. You know, this is like where nightmares come true. Yeah, they at least want a discount, I think. Yeah, well, I, I, to be honest, <laughs> I didn't think they would, would have wanted to fly, but no one was. Man, really- that's amazing. I was rushed straight into the air max and no one had time to say, hold on, this is not the flight that I want to get on. And especially if you have a phobia of flying because of the state that I was in, no one could tell if I was alive or not because I couldn't move really. And I just lay there and I was so weak and I, I, it had been almost 30 hours since I'd been shot and I hadn't slept either. So I, I, I was in the worst case scenario, but eventually we got to the hospital in Lima and there I was admitted to a proper hospital. Um, and what had happened is I, I'd been shot four times, but I'd been shot with a shotgun. And uh, the caliber of the shot, we call it buckshot. I don't know what you guys would call it. Yeah, but buckshot. It's a buckshot, yeah, okay. Yep. Um, we counted about uh, 22 different shots dispersed all over the body. Um, obviously, I had a punctured lung. 
But the punctured lung was actually fortunate because when we looked at the first x-ray, what had happened is the right lung that wasn't punctured, it was about three quarters full of blood. And then the left lung, which was punctured, was about a quarter full of blood. And, and having a punctured lung actually prevented me from drowning in my own blood. So it was actually a blessing in disguise. I then had a, a punctured carotid artery where they then put a stent in. I had a punctured windpipe and I had a punctured heart. And the, the shot that went through the heart is still in my heart. It punctured the, the outer wall and then got lodged in the septum. So it's right in the middle of the heart. If you can imagine where the core is of an apple, I have a shot lodged there and there. The doctors left a lot of the shots in my body because it had taken about 30 hours until I got to a hospital. And they said, you know, if, you, if you're still living and we now go and retrieve those bullets, we could potentially cause more damage. And especially that one in the heart, because in order to remove that, they said I would have required open heart surgery, which is a very invasive surgery in itself. It was actually, again, it was also a blessing in disguise that it had taken so long for me to get to a hospital because they said if I'd been shot and then I'd got rushed straight to hospital, they would have already just started cutting me up and taking out all the shots. Um, and again, that could, have, that could have potentially been worse than the shots itself. Right. Uh, obviously, the adventure was over. I mean, I was in, in and out of ICU for about two, three weeks, and then I was still in hospital for about a month. So a month in total. Um, obviously, I couldn't go back. Uh, adventure over. Uh, I returned home after that month. And then when you go through something like that, you think, okay, maybe I should just go get a normal day job. Maybe this adventure stuff is just too crazy. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You went through this whole ordeal. How do you, at least in the ordeal itself, how did you find the ability to trust people as you came upon different people? Did you just figure, well, I have nothing to lose and I might as well, you know, throw myself at their mercy and see what happens? Or that must, that psychological uh, aspect of it must have been insane. Well, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things after this happened and I actually um, I, I thought I was suffering from uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Do you know what Stockholm Syndrome is? I forget. Remind me. It, it's when you, you empathize with your captors or you empathize with someone who has done, done That's you right, yeah. really wrong. You know, It's like women who fall in love with their rapists or people who have been kidnapped and they decide to stay with their kidnappers. And after this experience, I never empathize with those guys to the point where I wanted to return to them but I couldn't understand why I wasn't angry why and I did, never wanted justice I never wanted revenge um, never wanted retribution and it almost bothered me because I'd speak to people that say you know what if I, ever, if I ever found those guys I'd kill them you know we should go in there and, and get them and I would just be like nah I don't want to do that you know and they're like you know when you almost lose your life. And again, there was no apparent motive for these guys to do it because it was never to take my stuff. You know, it wasn't for material gain because if they wanted my stuff, you know, instead of setting up an ambush, you could have just 
pulled up next to me in the kayak, put that same gun in my face and just take everything. Why do you try hunt someone before taking his stuff? Surely the easier job is just to hold him up. And also when I ran away from my stuff, the guy fired a fourth shot when I left my equipment. You know, why shoot me when I'm running away from my equipment? It doesn't make sense. So their motive was never understood, and I still don't know why. Um, my assumption is that the priority was my life, and I think for them it was just an activity. It was a, a day to get over the boredom, and they know that they could potentially kill me and get away with it. But when you go through something like that, that essentially so senseless, you almost beat yourself up when you're not angry or that you're not wanting to get these guys back. And I just couldn't understand it. And I, that's why I, I thought in the beginning that I must be suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. But then I, the more I thought about it, it wasn't that I was in denial of what happened and it wasn't that I... I was trying to justify that, oh, no, you know what, these guys probably had a difficult life or whatever excuses I could come up with. So I knew that I was aware of what happened and I, I was aware of the situation. And that's what kind of convinced me that it's not Stockholm Syndrome that you're suffering from. But the more I reflected, I realized even though those two guys had shot me, all those people in the jungle who had essentially saved me, I mean, I must have passed through close on 150 people in that jungle who all had small you know, small decisions and small impacts that essentially uh, ensured my survival. And what was most amazing about that was these guys, all of them, had no, uh, they couldn't relate to me at all. And there was never any perceived benefit to them because it's not like they th thought I was going to eventually get to the city and then draw a whole lot of money and come and pay them. You know, a lot of them did it from a very selfless point of view. Um, and when I sat with that, I was like, you know, you know, maybe because I'd been shot and literally after being shot, you know, half an hour later, I experienced all the compassion and the, the selflessness of these guys. That's what became the main focus of the whole story. And that's what I'd been dwelling on. And, and to the point where, when I'd seen that much good, it trumped the bad that I'd gone through, you know, if there is such thing as good and bad, but seeing that much kindness from so many varied people and only experiencing a senseless crime from two people, I was in such a fragile state in that whole period, but the, the most of the time I was actually being uh, uh, affected by these small acts of kindness and compassion. And eventually I left out of the jungle, always looking back on that. I never looked back on the attack. You know, I only tell the attack because that's an interesting story. But in my mind, I always think like, wow, you know, why were those people so kind to me? You know, it's amazing that they cared for me when they had, um, there was absolutely no positive outcome for them. You know, they just essentially cared for a human life and a human life that was very different to theirs. And after, you know, if, if that becomes your main center point of the whole experience is the goodness and the kindness and the compassion, it makes sense that you would come out and feel more positive about the potential of humans versus the negative. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the fact that, that you could look upon all of that, that good done by these other people um, probably helped you in the long run get yeah. through the ordeal psychologically, you know? Yeah, just to... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I would just agree. I just, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, again, you know, when you when you're under the you know, when you're on that balance between life and death, uh, depending on what state you're, but I was hyper vigilant. I was hyper aware because I thought if I close my eyes or if I fall asleep, I may never wake up. I would always have to remember more or less where I was in the jungle, more or less how long I'd been on the boat, which direction of the river I was going in, because I thought that. Uh, even if these guys say they did abandon me, I would then be left to fend for myself. So I, I had to be as conscious about the situation as possible um, without knowing that the byproduct of being hyper aware is that I was absorbing a lot of the kind things that they were doing without actually dwelling on it. You know, I was just accepting it in the, in the, in the present. Like there was a, a guy who I remember he put his hand on my chest and he sang this song. But it was like it was a very emotional experience for him, more than it was for me, because I was more concerned about welfare and getting out of this jungle. But for him, it was—I don't know if it was a spiritual moment for him. I have no idea. But because I was so open to that, uh, it was—it was kind of finding its little uh, cave in my mind and sitting there, and then. When I had time to reflect over this whole expedition, the most, uh, or the attack, the most, uh, I would say, vivid memories I have are memories like that. You know, when these very connected moments between humans, um, and I think that's essentially what uh, what was my saving grace and why I walked out of this without anger, without revenge without having to dwell on a negative story, without feeling sorry for myself because of that. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be. Yeah. Wow, what an amazing story. I mean, that's, uh, it's like, you know, our, our worst nightmare. Everything you described there is just that dream that won't end and you mm. can't, you can't get out of it. You can't make sense of what happened. You come across people that might be able to help you, but you literally can't yell out to them. I mean, everything you, you described there is uh, every, every word as I was listening was just like, this is the worst nightmare I could ever have. So (laughs) it sounds like you've come through it, uh, with a very positive attitude. Um, you know, you're, you're out speaking about it, but you're, you're writing and speaking about the, the good that came out of it at the same time. Well, uh, you know, uh, the thing is when I went on this adventure, and um, I wanted to promote caring. I wanted to promote compassion. I mean, that's why I'm vegan. I, you know, I think vegan is, uh, to be a vegan is one of the very few ways that you can actually display compassion to all species. You know, you can take compassion and you can display it towards animals and towards humans. And that's what I've been seeking. You know, I, I, sometimes I don't think the solution is about fixing things with technology or implementing new laws and changing an environment I think that a lot of solutions are a byproduct of a shift in mentality and my whole desire was that if people become more caring and more compassionate towards nature and towards each other and if we care about each other we will find the solutions but we're never going to find solutions if we don't care for each other and 
especially if we don't care for other species. So I'd always been looking for some story that could inspire that sense of caring because I think that's where everything begins. You know, if you don't care about things, you will never want to change it or you'll never want to make it better. And it was almost not that I invited what happened, but because I'd wanted something that could portray that message, I was able to uh, convert that attack into essentially a message of compassion. Whereas I think even if I'd completed that adventure, it wouldn't have had as powerful of a message because it would have just been about a journey from A to B. And perhaps the message and the reason why I went to the jungle wouldn't have been as amplified as it was. And uh, I think, it, it again, it's, it, it's not that I invited that, but, uh, you know, the reality is everyone goes through hardships, but most of us use our hardships to reinforce how miserable our lives are, how miserable humanity is. And whilst I can agree with that, I, I do think life is hard, and I do think there are a lot of elements to humans that are just horrid. But there's nothing that ever positive comes out of it if you just dwell on all the crappy things that happen to you in your life. You have to find a way to transform it. And I knew that a very long time ago because I'd read books that are from guys that inspired me, like uh, the guy Victor Frankl and Nelson Mandela. I was always inspired how they took tragedy and, and transformed it into some form of a triumph that was a lot better than just benefiting them. And I always wanted to do that, but I... Uh, it's very easy to say these things. You say that you can always find some positive light in the, your darkest times if you've never actually gone through anything challenging. I mean, I grew up in a very privileged home, and my life's been very easy. But having this experience was a, the opportunity to inspire others, but also to test myself against you know, the ideas I had in my mind and actually where I could apply them in real life. Wow. Well, you're doing that for sure. Well, I want to tell people about your book. You've written a book about this, this story, and I'm sure people are going to want to go out and, and, uh, and check it out for themselves and read the whole story. So tell me about that. Well, I mean, I've given you part of the story. Um, I don't think we have time to talk about the whole Amazon, but that's essentially what the book is. And I feel you can never tell a story like you can with the book. But the book, I mean, uh, I don't really promote it. If you're, if you're interested in hearing what happened in the, in the Amazon, you can go watch. I've done YouTube talks about it. So I'm not too concerned about selling books and stuff. Uh, it's more <laughs> well, about I, the I message. Wanna put the, I want to put the book out there because actually I'm going to pick it up and read it because I want to hear the whole story. The book is Choosing to Live. And uh, I'll put the links in the, our show yeah. notes so people can find that. And I want I want to give you due credit because this really is an amazing story. And and like I said, or like we discussed, you're not telling this to tell about the the horrors of of what happened. It's it's also a story about people coming together to yeah. to save another human being without anything being in it for them. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to go on to the the next thing that you have on your plate. Um, first of all, what what drives you to to continue to go on some of these adventures after an experience like this? I mean, for a lot of people, they would just throw up their hands, walk away, and say, "You know what? I gave it a shot. This happened, and yeah, I'm going to go back to you know, what we call normal life." Uh, 
what drives you to, to continue on and do this next adventure we're going to talk about? So adventure to me has always been uh, essentially my, a platform for activism. And I learned that through Africa. I learned that, you know, when you do these adventures, because when we did the Africa adventure, we managed to raise enough money to get a house completed for this family in Tanzania. And at that point in my life, it was the first time I'd actually ever done something positive for someone else. And I'd been searching for that, you know, when I, I, uh, uh, when I was younger, like I was, when I was 20, I had a this complete change in my life. And it was all, it was all inspired by veganism. But I thought, you know, I don't want to ever know that my uh, impact on earth was negative or that I supported cruelty or that I exploited people. And whilst I do think it's very difficult to separate from that, when you live in civilization, you're dependent on businesses. But I had this huge change where I said, you know, I don't care. I've never really cared about money. I've never cared about status. You know, I think it's perhaps things of the old American dream that everyone bought into, but it doesn't make your life any better. And I never, you know, I got to a point where I said, I don't want to dedicate my life to getting me ahead. You know, I'm fine. You know, all I need is a bit of fruit, and that's it uh, to eat. And I said, I, I wanted to dedicate my life to the service of others and, and also to animals. And uh, adventure just became that platform. And it was by pure coincidence, as I said, when I you know, was just overhearing a breakfast conversation that I was introduced into adventure. But it did provide a very um, interesting platform where I could amplify whatever message I was spreading. You know, I always use the analogy that um, the cause or the reason why I do these things is the hook and the adventure is the bait and the more in, intriguing and the more interesting the adventure the more tastier the bait but no one is ever going to bite that hook if they're not interested in the bait and unfortunately that's what the adventure serves as just a very very tasty bait to a lot of people and I get to do a lot of media to talk about these adventures but I can also um, interject with the causes and uh, so after the, the Africa trip, because that was Ricky's cause, um, mine has all been dedicated towards environment, always. But it, when I talk about environment, I don't talk about climate change. I don't care about that. You know, the earth, If the, what makes the earth unique is the life it supports. Otherwise, it's just a floating rock in the universe. And it baffles me that the environmental drive is about your concentration of gases in the atmosphere, you know, why don't we care about life? It, it, I just, it, it bothers me. It bothers me that we've become so removed from other, other species that even when we're caring about our environment, we care more about carbon dioxide than the existence of living animals. Uh, so when I talk about environmentalism, I always talk about, to me, it's the animate aspects of Earth. It's the life. It's what makes life unique. It's what makes life special. Is protecting life and I use the adventures to um, promote that protection, but mainly, uh, you know, I focus on uh, the mass extinction. You know, we, we, we're living in a period of history now known as the sixth mass extinction. Uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs, that was the fifth mass extinction, and there were four previous ones. And the five mass extinctions that life has experienced were all due to these cataclysmic events like uh, massive climate change, you know, but that was due to the Earth's oscillation around the sun. 
super volcanoes, meteors. But you know, when you when you look at the past extinctions, it was all these you know these outer-worldly cat- catastrophes. It was never a species causing the extinction of other species. It's never been like that until now. You know, now we've entered the sixth mass extinction where we're seeing extinction rates that potentially rival the extinction of the dinosaurs. You know, the same amount of animals disappearing in the same amount of time. But what's unique about this is that it's caused all by humans. We're the first species in like 3.6 billion years of evolutionary life. We're the first species in all that time. And and bear in mind, we've only been on Earth for about 200,000 years. Um, We're the first species in all that time to be causing the mass extinction of other species. You know, we're doing only what super volcanoes and meteors could do. And it's just so sobering that no, no people know about it. People don't care. You know, we care more about filling our house with solar panels and finding a better way to charge our cell phone than we do with the fact that we're wiping out like 50% of all the frog species on Earth. And it's just sad. You know, it's just sad that that's how removed we become from other life. And right. essentially, that's, that's what adventure is. It's to take that message and it's not to solve anything. Again, I'm not, I'm not solution-orientated because I think very... Often when you focus too heavily on solutions, you actually amplify the problem or you make it even worse because uh, these problems don't need to be fixed by technology and by governments. Essentially, we need to correct the way we think about nature. You know, you if you neglect nature, of course you're not going to care about where they go extinct, which is exactly what's happening now. That's why no one knows about mass extinction. And I mean, I think it's remarkable that we could be living in a mass extinction. You know, we're living... Similar to as if we were existing when all the dinosaurs were dying, but we're so oblivious that we don't even know they're disappearing. That's how neglectful we are. So my hope is that just by mentioning the the mass extinction, and essentially to me it's the greatest environmental issue because it's life. You know, at the end of the day, if you wipe out a huge portion of life on Earth, whilst it may endure, it's still a lot more dangerous and a lot more. Uh, catastrophic than changing the the compounds in your atmosphere. You know, it just doesn't make sense that we still hop on about methane and nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide when we're losing like thirty five species a day. Yeah, so it's alarming hope, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at the now, I, mean, I, I always refer to the conservative estimates, but again, the estimates at best. But by the end of the century, we're looking at a fifty percent reduction in all biodiversity on Earth, which is huge. And that's just the end of the century, and we show absolutely no signs of slowing down or addressing the problems we're causing. Um, And again, my hope is that all adventure does is it facilitates the conversation so that the next time, you know, uh, if you're interested in adventure, and also I do get a, a bit of media coverage because the adventures are so different, but if it, if it just pushes that agenda of mass extinction further up the, the chart of what real problems we're experiencing, um, my hope is that enough people will start to care and enough people will start to dedicate their life to improving it somehow, some way. Um, and essentially, that's all I can hope for. But again, it's not a positive story. I'm not out here either trying to promote that these are the fixes that we need to do because I don't know exactly what we need to do because it's too encompassing. 
it takes a huge amount of effort to cause just one extinction. To cause mass extinction is essentially looking at a whole system that is uh, uh, contributing to that. And that's, right. I mean, that's it. It's, uh, I feel that if you're going to live on this earth, it's your duty to uh, be active about some cause or some problem because there's so many of them. And I think if you just neglect problems and you just go about living your own existence trying to get you ahead, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's a very selfish way to live. And again, I, you know, adventure is just my, it's just my platform. That's it. And uh, I'll continue to use it as long as I find it is a, a good platform. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about the uh, this Atlantic project that you're about ready to to embark on? Can we can we touch base before uh, we wrap it up, just to to hear yeah. about what what it is you guys are doing? So the the Atlantic project is uh, I've had a pedal boat designed and built, and we'll be using that to pedal from Cape Town, South Africa, to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Um, uh, it will take it's about just under 7,000 kilometers, and it's a pedal boat, so there's no engine, no sail, it's driven by like a bicycle system, um, but we'll, we expect it'll probably take about um, between three to six months, obviously we don't have a support team or anything, so we carry all our own food on board, we carry our own water, we have a water maker, um, but I mean that's that's the gist of the the Atlantic project, but of course, obviously all dedicated towards uh, the sixth mass extinction. Right. Well, that's uh, quite the endeavor. So how many guys are doing this? Well, it's just me and my mom. Oh, <laughs> right on. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, your mom had a, played a big role in, uh, in saving your life and, and getting you out of your, your situation in the Amazon. So it'd be what a yeah. great trip to, uh, to go out with her. And how did you convince her to do this? I didn't well, convince she bring her. it to you. <laughs> she, she came to, I planned to do it solo. She planned, she came to me and, uh, she just turned 50 this year. And, um, to be honest, I don't know her exact motivations for doing it, but you know, the nice thing and the reason why I wanted her, why I accepted her to, to join was because she helps amplify the message. You know, when you hear about a 50 year old woman who's either, even further removed from fitting the adventurous profile that I am, yeah, uh, it just makes the expedition that more interesting and unique. And of course, the more unique elements you have, the more interested media is, the more interested other people are, and they essentially, the bait becomes more enticing, but there's always the hook that they're going to be forced to bite on, which is that mass extinction. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get you and your mom back on after you get done with this trip. I would love to hear her experience or her angle from it. Well, we, we, we're hoping to, I mean, we're leaving within hopefully the next 10 days. We've had a few hurdles because uh, the South African government has, this has never happened here before. So they don't know what to do with us because they, they, they don't recognize us as a vessel or an ocean crossing boat. Um, so they just don't know what to do. They and you know we can't. You can't clear customs and immigration unless your boat's been registered. But they don't want to register our boat because they don't see it as a boat. So we're hoping that uh, yeah. It's just, again, it's, these are just the hurdles that you that you encounter when you do these uh, different types of things. Well, it's all part of the adventure. I think you've uh, you've lived through uh, through worst things. I think you'll probably manage to get through this one as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> 
All right, Davey, man, thanks so much for, for coming on and telling us that story. Um, it's just uh, what an amazing life you've led. And uh, it sounds like you're just pressing on and, and continue to do some of these amazing adventures. And I hope to have you guys back on to, to hear all about this next one. Yes. Thanks, Travis. And thanks for giving me the time to share. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. You take care. You too. Thanks, Travis. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.